0: As I came into church this morning, my mum looked at my sweatshirt, she said, nice sweatshirt. (coughs) And then I I said, oh yeah, it's an antique, and then realised how long ago I was at university. So thanks mum, it's a mother's job for making their child feel old. (laughs) Um, So, yep, it's the next week in our our series. Um, I'm not going to give away quite yet what it is, although some of you clever lot may have been following it. And... uh, kind of have an idea of what's coming up. Um, So anyway, here we go. Now, I'm sure this isn't quite up to the same level of a late night more for expose on the working of a big organisation, but I want to briefly talk about how the distribution of sermons in a series is worked out sometimes in the church. Bear with me, as like I always do when I talk, I ramble, I ramble, I ramble. It's a long twisting road of the store is near confusion and eventually we just get to the point in the nick of time before time runs out. So, often the uh, final decision on the uh, preaching series is emailed out by Sam to those of us who will be preaching during the series. He and Mike will have finalised dates and running order so that it fits all together within the year and progresses sensibly and wisely. Sometimes, certain people are earmarked for specific weeks, particularly when we get a visiting speaker. Other times, we'll have a list of dates with the topics, verses, and the overall aim of the series. We'll then be able to immediately cancel out the dates, like the weeks that we might be away from church, and then it's an exciting race after that to work out, think about, pray about which topic we want to preach on and where we feel led. Then we email back, and Sam no doubt carries out some kind of clever eldership working out that you can only do when you're an elder, to get everyone and every week into the right spot. This series, when I saw the topics and the verses, I must admit to mainly panicking at the sight of a sermon based on a single verse and steer well clear of that one. Uh, Fortunately, Paul took it on, uh, but I still worry that one day the eldership will decide to do something like what happened at West Birmingham Family Church when it launched and spend three or four years preaching on Ephesians every week, right down to weeks focused on a single word, which terrifies, the, that terrifies me. I like to have a, a large canvas. So, Mike, cover your ears. No preaching on single words too much. Thank you. Um, so, <laughs> so, anyway, I put myself forward for this one, actually. I chose this one, and I got it. I initially thought that I'd chosen well. Sam said last week. For <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Uh, Sam said last week that these sermons um, in part three of our Sermon on the Mount series had been extremely challenging to himself and as the church as a whole. I agree with both personally and corporately. However, this week I thought, Ah, Luke, <laughs> you're doing false prophets. You're all right, mate. You pray about your sermons. You check your scripture. You get your Bible verses involved. You don't go around prophesying falsely over people. You don't take money and hopes off the poor in exchange for relics and pardons. Then I reread the passage in preparation about trees producing good fruit and bad fruit. I dwelt on it, sat on it, worried about it. I had a full, I had a full 1 Timothy 1.15 moment where Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. So I spent a lovely 30 minutes. Just being very low on myself, to be honest. Yeah. I str- thanks. <laughs> only 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, I struggled to start this sermon for some time. I researched it. I checked stuff out. I poodled stuff around. But it was only on Tuesday night, as I lay in bed, that a kind of clarity came to me. Church, I want to lay myself out in front of you somewhat today, metaphorically. Um, I've been challenged hugely by these verses, and I think they might challenge some of you too. Now, some of you might remember the second Reasons meeting that was going to take place on Saturday the 19th of November. Unfortunately, it was cancelled. But I'll tell you what, those seminars looked amazing. To me, they really hit the spot. I've been to many Christian events over the years. I've been in the church for 30-odd years. And uh, even more seminars. Often, if I go to a, a day or a week of seminars, I can find one that I really want to go to another that could be interesting, and then I'd choose kind of a random one because some of the alternatives really didn't fit. So that's kind of how it works. However, reading the reason seminar list really hit me. And I was, I'm, I was hoping for recordings to listen to at a later date. It's like they almost wrote the seminars for me. The seminars were on films and TV. Can I watch anything and not be affected? Music. Can it change the world and can it lift your soul? And should it? And relationships, friendships, social circles. Can we build friendships that are accepting without endorsing sin? And are all social circles acceptable? As I lay in bed on Tuesday night, those cancelled seminars played on my mind. First up, I'm in a band. Not just the one that plays here on Sundays, but a noisy band that plays its own songs in pubs and music venues around North Kent and into London. It's not a Christian band. But like my bandmates know I'm a Christian and they're okay with that. But not all our music tells happy messages. Very little, if any, is about love or healing broken hearts or cuddling puppies. <laughs> does music does the music lift souls? Does it matter? I listen to some music that's quite political at times, which I'm sure will come as no surprise to some of you. Some music I love can be angry, frustrated, anti-establishment. Some isn't. Some is about love and lost hearts and there might be a song about a puppy or two. But most, most of it isn't. Does this lift my soul? Does that mean I should bury myself away with only Christian music? I know people that do. I also know church leaders who listen to all kinds of punk and rock and metal. You know, both ends. Still, it did make me think. Film and TV... True, I know I'm saved by a wonderful saviour who died so that I could live, so that I'm free from the clutches of sin and have my place in heaven secure. But would Jesus sit and watch the Japanese film Battle Royale with me? Would he watch the violent Korean film Old Boy? The extremely sweary Ben Kingsley in the gangster film Sexy Beast? Should it matter? Again, I know Christians who won't watch anything higher than a PG. And I know Christians who watch 15s, 18s, violent swearing and so on. In my life, there are times when I've found it easier to be friends with non-Christians than Christians. That kind of feels scary in a way. Should it feel scary? Have these friendships and groups been edifying to me and my walk with God? Am I doing things wrong? I know I'm supposed to be in the world, but as John 17 14 says, I'm not of this world. Maybe the terror I felt is of possible hypocrisy. I'm teaching on bearing good fruit and bearing bad fruit. Am I doing God's will in my life? Am I overthinking it? Or is it utterly key and important to me standing here today? Church, I want to be doing God's will. And I hope you do too. I just wanted you to see my concerns and understand them and agree that you too will also consider the fruit that you bear during and after this sermon and during the week. I won't be given an answer today for each of those personal questions I just threw out in a blur mind blur. But I hope that what I do, say, will help me and you understand more about our good and bad fruit, as well as much more. So then, my passage for today is Matthew 7, verse 15 to 23. And it says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you'll recognise them. but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I'm going to section up the remainder of my time this morning into prophets and trees. What we need to be looking for in others who teach us, lead us and speak over us, and what we need to be aware of within ourselves. So first, I'd like to look at what Jesus has to say about false prophets and what it can mean for us. That's my own phone interrupting my own sermon. That's absolutely <laughs> incredible. <laughs> and it's my work phone that is on, which is not supposed to be, is it, Lizzie? No? <laughs> and it's a student as well. I know which student it is. Uh, <laughs> so, false prophets. Watch out for False prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you'll recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? That was really hard for me to say. Prophets, ah, prophets. I was terrified by prophets as a kid. Not that I had any real reason to be. Uh, no reason in my life for there to be. But because there's something about their directness and how God, wait for it, spoke to them about other people, and even more alarmingly, God knows everything, by the way, God knows everything. Numerous times, as a, as a lad, young teenager, i will be sitting in my seat as the prophets of at church that day, invariably moved away from the lectern, rubbed their hands together in sort of a mock sort of a ha-ha <laughs> way, started pacing around at the front. Of course, if you don't want to be prophesied over, then don't wear a stripey or bright-coloured top. At least that was always my theory. Didn't always work. God's been talking to me, he'd say. I have some words for people here today. At that point, I'd shrink down in my chair, looking around nervously, terrified that the prophet's eyes would land on me. That he'd raise his finger and declare for the whole congregation to hear, this boy here really fancies a girl in his class and has practiced kissing on the back of his hands. Oh, and by the way, God's called him to India. I have a boat ticket right here for him to leave tomorrow. (laughs) The thing is, prophecy from God, when truly from God, may well be challenging and bring up some issues in your life, but unsurprisingly from a loving Father, will always be done to strengthen you and build you up. Never to destroy you, humiliate you, or belittle you. I found seven points online on weighing up a prophecy, which I've heard talked before actually, And as I read it, it all came flooding back, which is a good thing. It shows my mind's still working. The prophecies and teachings bought from prophets are their fruits. What they say to us is meant to be word from God speaking to us. It should be taken seriously. And as such, we should watch out for false prophets. Because if what they say is not from God, then their actions are like that of ferocious wolves which can devour the flock from the inside. I'd like to read out these following seven points. On how to weigh up if a word or teaching is from God. And I believe it is important. The blog that I sort of found these on in the end even gave them snappy titles, so they're really good for taking notes. Well, <coughs> notes. Right. first thing, the character test. Does the prophetic word or interpretation reflect the character of Jesus? Does it sound like something God would say to you? He is loving. And has a good outcome for your life. He has a purpose. He wants to bring you closer to him. This is true even when a prophecy contains a warning. Secondly, the Bible test. Does the prophetic word line up with principles God has laid out in the Bible? A prophecy should never go against what the Bible says. For example, a prophecy that should cause disunity in the church or cause you to commit sin would not agree with scripture. Thirdly, the heart check test. Does the prophecy or message sit well with your spirit? Or does it make you feel uncomfortable and give you like a warning check in response? You don't have to receive a, a prophecy. It makes you feel uncomfortable. 1 John 2 verse 20 says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. The Holy Spirit inside us stirs if it knows that you're doing something wrong or hearing something wrong. It just doesn't feel right. Number four, the confirmation test. A personal prophecy should confirm what God has already spoken to you. Or be consistent with the way he has wired you. If the prophecy does not immediately bring confirmation, it may be over time. So feel free to shelve it for a while. Do not make a sudden change of direction in response to a personal prophecy... If you feel led to make a change in response to a prophetic message brought for another person, remember that God never pressures you. Number five, the leadership test. Ask, would my church leadership be comfortable with this word? Submitting a prophecy along with your response to it to a leader in the church is a wise way to check prophetic guidance. Having another opinion from someone who is mature in their Christian walk and who also knows you can be helpful. Number six, the time test. You won't know whether some prophecies are from God until you've given, t- given them time to be fulfilled. If you're unsure about a prophetic word, it's okay, again, to shelve it, put it aside, and review it at a later date. I've had some that didn't necessarily feel right for that time, but when I look back at it, sort of a year later, it turned out to be spot on. It, you know, it was where I was right then. Number seven, the prophet test. Do you know the person prophesying? Are they known to the leaders of the church or recognised in the wider church for their gift? Don't accept a personal prophecy from just anyone. As the passage says, some people prophesy in his name but not actually know him. Jesus also said to watch out for false prophets and that you could tell by their fruit, the character, what lives they're producing, how they are, if they're walking as a godly man or a woman of Christ. As Michael Green says in the Message of Matthew, which is this book here, it's dense but interesting. He says, when talking about prophets and other Christians, he says, and he doesn't mince his words really, Michael Green. He says, How evil are the fruits to be found in many professing Christians? A religion that takes refuge in charismatic jargon about prophecy or miraculous healings or the driving out of demons, but may not even really know Jesus and does not really do the will of the Heavenly Father. Matthew may well have had in mind wild, charismatic prophets current in his day, as he recorded these words of his Master. When we listen to teachings, prophecies, prayers, worship lyrics, and so on, we need to make sure that we're picking grapes from vines and figs from the fig trees as such, rather than looking for them on the thorn bushes and the thistles. Matthew 722 23 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This suggests that there will be those who feel they are doing God's work. Maybe truly, or perhaps they've repeatedly told themselves they're doing God's work as part of their personal ministry. Even if the intentions are true, God needs to be at the centre of what is said and done. Those who are touring miracles, prophecy, and so on for their own fame and furthering their own ministry are missing the point. It's about God and furthering God's work, of the Lord speaking into the hearts of those who need it. Oh, that is the fruit. The humble who know that it's all about God and God wanting to speak to, encourage, and lovingly challenge his children, who are listening to him and what he wants to say, who are living. Um, as godly men, godly women, who are following God's teachings. They're fruitful in the Lord. Teaching and prophecy is not about slick presentation, showy catchphrases, and a focus on the individual. The teacher, prophet, or healer is the vessel that the Lord is speaking or working through at that time. The power is with God, and the glory is his. Going back to the Michael Green passage a minute ago, I want to use it to move on as well to the next section. Look at trees. He carries on. He says, Oh no. (coughs) Likewise, I think he's taking it from the passage to be honest. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognise them. So that's going back to Matthew. Okay? This is serious business. We're not talking about, uh, we're not now talking about the lofty few travelling the country casting up demons and televangelising. We're talking about all of us. We're all trees in this passage with the good fruit and the bad fruit. I grew up on a farm living in Norton, just outside Faversham, from the age of about two and a half, two and a half, yeah. Until I left for university, <clears throat> we have fields all around, which fill with fruit as the summer progressed into autumn, plums, apples, strawberries, and so on. We could walk for ages, for hours, <clears throat> and there'd be yet another field of trees. I could just get lost there for like hours, hours at a time. Ironically, I now hate walking and have oral allergy syndrome, thanks hay fever, which means that increasingly there are fruits that I'm allergic to eating raw. But at the time, it was fantastic. Walking around, eating fruits, it was brilliant. I used to walk, run, cycle through, eating fresh from the tree fruits. Oh, we had plums outside. Oh, it was fantastic. Now, I wasn't involved in the pruning of the trees, or the weed killing, which stank the chemicals, the growing of the trees, anything like that. I only picked fruit a few times for a little bit of extra cash as I got older. But even I knew, and still know, that a dead, rotten, or dying tree isn't going to produce a bumper harvest of fruit. Conversely, trees that have been looked after, have been fed, watered, have the sunlight, and are healthy and strong, tend to bear some great fruit. As the farmer walks around the fields, he'll be noticing those dead or dying trees, trees that are diseased or unhealthy. He's not going to leave the tree there, taking up space, with possibilities of disease spreading, such trees are chopped down and disposed of. They're burnt. So, Jesus says, are those who do not produce good fruit. It's not just in Matthew 7 either. Matthew 3 verse 10 says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John 15 speaks of the branches, us, and the vine the Lord and that we need to remain in the vine or get pruned. Michael Green states, a profession of truth that makes no difference to the way we behave is barren and will never save anybody. There must be fruit, consistent, attractive fruit on the tree of our lives, fruit that will show there is a gardener at work. He later continues, I fear that so much that passes Christianity will shrivel up in the day of judgment and be found to be bogus and worthless. People judge the tree by the fruit. The awesome truth Jesus teaches here is that so does God. If the fruit is not real, we may take leave to doubt the nature of the fruits. I think this is where the passage really hit me, going back to Matthew, as I was preparing. why I started thinking of my choices music, film and friendships just a part of them. Am I being fruitful in Christ? Am I living fruitfully? Am I producing good fruit? The alternatives terrifying. Can Christians make bad choices or mistakes and still have been saved all along? 1 John 5:18 says, "We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin." However, 1 John 1:8 1, to 10 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. <clears throat> if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and for, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. <clears throat> I think that there is a difference here. There's a difference between continuing to sin without heed or care, and realising that we're doing wrong and confessing him keeping short accounts with God. To claim that we don't sin or to claim that all our fruit is perfect and spotless at all times is deceiving ourselves and it's just as bad as bearing bad fruit. As it says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We will still sin, make bad decisions or have wrong priorities at times. We are still human but the key is realising that we have sinned. And ask him for forgiveness that our faithful and just Lord can provide. And only he can provide. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord as the one who can save us. That does not mean that we can purposefully live a life of bad fruit after bad fruit after bad fruit. In the blasé view that God will forgive us regardless because we are saved. This misses the point of salvation and repentance. Instead, God knows... That there will be times when we fall or make mistakes or make the wrong choice. And his love is such that he is willing to forgive us regardless. Can the band come up please? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23 says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. I've read various writers this week who would argue about what matters is how it affects your heart where the truth of the fruit is known. God knows our heart. He knows if the prophets standing before him truly know him or not. He knows how what we're watching or listening to or doing or thinking or saying is affecting our heart and the hearts of others. It's equally as important not to allow a fellow believer... To fall through our actions if they struggle with something. Maybe you can watch a relatively violent film without it affecting your heart with anger, rage, and violent intention. But your friend or partner may struggle with those emotions, watching the same thing. It's not constructive and can produce bad fruit in their lives, which they'll need to repent for. Of course, our aim should to become should be to become more like Christ. To take him as our role model. We shouldn't revel in or become attached to the odd bits of bad fruit that might be growing. Instead, we need to take a closer look. Decide that fruit needs to be cut off, repented for, replaced with good fruit. Ultimately, our actions will show the state of our heart. We need to consider what we do, how we act. We need to keep short accounts with God in our prayers and ask him for forgiveness. We need to consider our brothers and sisters and sometimes sacrifice things that we have no personal struggle with, but which they do. We need to look after each other and look out for one another. This also includes the prophets and teachers from the earlier part of the sermon. There are lots of those seven points where we can support each other and make sure that we're not trying to eat from the thorns. That together we can see any wolves in sheep's clothing whose words would devour us and whose hearts are for their own career and ministry who aren't living as God would like them to live, that they're not about the word of the Lord and the love for those for whom they're speaking. A strong, healthy tree bears good fruit that sustains and nourishes those who eat of it. Some harvests may be more bountiful than others over the years on the same tree But that fruit that it produces is good. The farmer will prune and feed the tree. And the tree will respond with the growth and the fruit. This is what we must aim for in our lives. To not be the trees that have rotted or even died producing bad fruit. We need to understand that we're not sinless and that we will sin. But we must be looking to pluck off that fruit and look towards growing that good fruit. We can all have hobbies, we can all have friends, both Christians and non-Christians. We can all listen to music, watch films, follow sport or enjoy the arts. But in everything, we must look at our heart and how, we're, and how what we're doing is affecting us and our walk with God. Because our heart is where our fruit starts growing. Okay, I'm just going to pray quickly.